Hello and welcome to Equinox, episode 32, and our first annual Nobel Prize review. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the doc, the illustrious Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. It is exciting to do something. We've wanted to do exciting annual shows, doing something special, and this is the first one that we have pinned to the recording schedule. Yes, um, this is going to be a fun one. I'm looking forward to it. I am so glad that you suggested this. Well, it's like the ultimate of all science, and we're talking about science on the show all the time, and this sounds like a, a really cool thing to do together. Mm-hmm. Now, for our listeners, you were reminding me before we started the show that we actually brought up Alfred Nobel, the man behind the prize, in episode 24, Yes, when we, we were talking about weapons and dynamite yes, explosives. I think that was prescient of us. Isn't that, isn't that the, was that the episode where we decided we had to do a Nobel Prize feature? I don't remember. It could have been. Could have been. And here we are just a couple months later. Yeah. We, well, we talked about explosives. And the, the reason that that's unique is just because Nobel invented, it wasn't a dynamite. Dynamite, yeah. Mm, Which is incredible stuff. basically stabilized TNT. So trinitrotoluene, which was extremely explosive. You drop it, it blows up. You heat it up, it blows up. It you know, could just blow up all the time. Dynamite was very stable. And he made so much money because he was a really good businessman. And they're not just, not just for explosives. He had a whole bunch of different patents and a whole bunch of different things. And he had businesses in multiple different countries. And when he died, he was a very rich man. Yes. Well, then let me go ahead and introduce what Nobel, uh, how he wants to be remembered based off of their website for the Nobel Prize and for Alfred. I thought it'd be good to set the stage. So this is what they say for himself. Alfred Nobel was an inventor, entrepreneur, scientist, and businessman who also wrote poetry and drama. His varied interests are reflected in the prize he established in which he laid the foundation for in 1895 when he wrote his last will, leaving much of his wealth to the establishment of the prize. Since 1901, the Nobel Prize has been honoring men and women from around the world for outstanding achievements in physics, chemistry, physiology, or medicine, literature, for work in peace. And he was born the 21st of October, 1833, died the 10th of December, 1896, and he was known for inventing dynamite and holder of 355 patents. Dude, I have one patent, and that took me like four years to get. So uh that's amazing. Well, I mean, he had the advantage over you because he got started earlier. True. And plus there weren't as many patents back then. There was maybe more things to invent. No, I'm just kidding. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) Slacker. Professions. He was a chemist, inventor, engineer, entrepreneur, businessman, and author. And he, uh, in his will, he left 31 million S-E-K. Swedish kroners. Yeah. $265 million by today's USA standards to fund the prize. Wow. Incredible. So uh, it says in the last will and testament that Nobel signed his last will in Paris on November the 27th, 1895. And he specified that the bulk of his fortune should be divided into five parts and to be used for prizes in physics, chemistry, physiology, and medicine, literature, and peace, like we said earlier. A uh, little bit more about the prizes themselves. So can you tell me what the laureates are, are about? Why are they getting laureates but not prizes? Or do they only get prizes? Well, what I'm asking is, for every laureate, is there a prize? 
Every prize winner is thereafter called a laureate. Coming, of course, from ancient Rome. You've heard the phrase resting on one's laurels. Ooh, same wording. Yeah, oh. it's it's in Rome. You've seen pictures of of like Romans with like like a twig behind their ears with leaves. Yes. You have. Those are laurels. It was a sign of recognition. We're going to give him the laurel and you wear a little wreath behind your ears. It was this like high honor in Rome. I remember them being described as crowns. Our pastor described them as uh, the laurels. And he also said that in, in a manner of speaking, they were considered crowns. And I guess they could have done crowns also. It just was one particular image in my head that I have of a statue and yeah. the guy's got leaves behind his ears. So from the Nobel website, it says between 1901 and 2020, the Nobel Prizes and the Prize in Economic Sciences were awarded 603 times to 962 people and organizations. The Nobel Prize is an international award administered by the Nobel Foundation in Stockholm, Sweden, and based on the fortune of Alfred Nobel, Swedish inventor and entrepreneur. In 1968, Riksbank established the Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel, founder of the Nobel Prize. Each prize consists of a medal, a personal diploma, and a cash award. A person or organization awarded the Nobel Prize is called Nobel Laureate. The word laureate refers to being signified by the laurel wreath. In ancient Greece, laurel wreaths were awarded... Greece, not Rome. Oh. Yeah. Were awarded to victors as a sign of honor. <laughs> oh, okay. So I learned some history here. So is everyone else listening? Yep. We've all learned history together. It was Greece, not Rome. So yes, there were 603 awards, uh, 962 laureates for the prize categories. There are six categories. 57 awards went to women. 25 awards have gone to organizations. The youngest laureate ever was 17, and the oldest was 97. Fascinating. So can you tell me about the Nobel Prize and why we wanted to review it on this episode of Equinox? I find it fascinating, but there's a lot to unpack. There's so much to talk about. I mean, that when you just mentioned a minute ago, the youngest awarder ever is Malala Yousafzai, pardon, I can't pronounce the name. I know I've heard it a million times. She's, she's a, a Pakistani girl who is fighting for the right for women to get education. And she has been very much suppressed in lots of anger and death threats and things like that. And so is a very brave young woman. Wow. Anyway, what was that question you just asked me? Is there anything else you wanted to add to who uh, Nobel was? why they created the prize, and why we would like to review them. The only other thing I want to say about Nobel is the fact that back in episode 24, when we're talking about Nobel and his life, mm -hmm. I mentioned that the reason he started the prizes was because a French newspaper accidentally published his obituary before he died. And people were railing against him. You know, the doctor of death, the inventor of doom, because of ex explosions and all the the, the people that died as a result of his products, wow. either in war or, in, you know, you know, blowing up dynamite and the cliff falls down and people die, you know, stuff like that. And so he was so horrified by that, that he decided that he was going to take all of his money and donate it toward the betterment of humanity. Oh, and that wow. is the source of the Nobel Prizes. Awesome. And every year... Uh, they've been awarding them all this time. In fact, that the new award in U.S. dollars is about $1.3 million. So it's not insignificant, the amount of money that, that people are given, and sometimes divided up, as we're going to see amongst different people. Um, but this is a, a, a financial benefit to humanity 
specific humans, but it's also an amazing recognition. And the fact that no one else has a, an award like this, even though it's been a hundred years now, you think, you know, the William H. Gates Award, you know, for computer technology, whatever. I don't see that anywhere. There might be something like a college degree or diploma or a, what's, what's it called? A college scholarship or something. And, right. But it's just, nothing is as famous as the Nobel Prizes. According to the website that there is, uh, it says that there is one, two, three, four, five, six members on the Nobel Committee. Yes, and nobody, you can't say, I've been nominated necessarily, because you don't always know. But anyone, they have like a, a, for each of the different divisions, they have a group of like physicists and a group of physicians. And it's like, okay, who would you like, who do you think deserves a prize? And they'll write down a bunch of names. And then the committee, after they get those recommendations, will take them and make a decision. And it's in secret. I mean, Donald Trump was nominated this year. We know that. He didn't get it. No surprise. Interesting. But their decision is done in secret, and then it's just announced. And there has been some rather controversial decisions over the years. <laughs> like uh, Raymond Damadian, who's featured on a lot of creation.com material, who was the invention, who was the inventor of MRI, oh. which is an incredibly important medical device. He wasn't given the Nobel Prize, but the people who took his invention and improved upon it were. Hugely controversial. Interesting. Man, that's, that's like, wow, slap in the face sort of stuff. And there's some prizes have been awarded for things that people are like, eh, is that really that significant? Not this year, though. This year's awards were absolutely significant and, and amazing. And there's a lot of politicking that happens. And there's a lot of, you know, people saying, I should get this award. And people will get angry and whatever. But this is the way competitions go. It's kind of fun to watch. I remember being introduced to Nobel Prizes through Lois Lane of the Daily Planet, talking about how she wanted her Nobel Prize. Did she get a Nobel Prize? I, I don't think that she was the kind of person that was so peaceful as to deserve one. Oh, she wanted a Peace Prize. As a newspaper reporter, you think she might get one in literature, maybe. <laughs> of course, as we all know that newspapers are fiction. <clears throat> I'm sure she would have been happy with any award she could have gotten. Yes, well. But she doesn't strike me as the type. No. Then let's move on to prize number one, then. Okay. There are six prizes to discuss. And I kind of want to order them backwards and talk about the least important first. Or at least the ones that are least important for this show. Okay. Because, you know, peace, literature, and economics is not something we talk about on Equinox a lot. And so let's just talk about those and dispense with them and move on to the really cool science ones at the end. So the first one, the Nobel Peace Prize. That's the granddaddy of all the prizes because if you get the Nobel Peace Prize, you're basically the, one of the most well-known people in the world. Except this year. Mm. Because it went to an organization. <laughs> It went to the world. Ah, it went to point. the World Food Program. It says from. Well, let me go ahead and quote from the site then about them. Okay. So the Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2020 to the World Food Program. The World Food Program is the world's largest humanitarian organization addressing hunger and promoting food security. In 2019, the World Food Program provided assistance to close to 100 million people in 88 countries who are victims of acute food insecurity and hunger. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That's really cool. Yes. And, very. I mean, food, food security is incredibly important. It's not something Americans ever worry about anymore, most of them anyway. But if you live in East Africa, like Eritrea or, or Sudan, that's something that's very much on your mind a lot. 
a lot of scientific research goes into trying to solve hunger problems yeah. worldwide yeah. all the time. But the single greatest contributor to world hunger is war. It's not drought. It's war. That's what triggers famines more than anything else. Because if there's people that are hungry, other people in the world will gladly sell them food if it can get there. So and that's why it's so important that it's a peace prize that is coinciding with meeting the need for world hunger needs and world food needs. Yeah. Incredible. Now, I guess I guess um, I should back up a little bit because the Irish potato famine, 1944, 5, 46, that was caused by a blight. And if the people had money, they would have been able to buy themselves food, but they were dirt poor potato farmers. And when the potatoes died, there was no money and no food, and they died in the millions. Mm. And at least five of my ancestors that I can figure out are Irish potato famine immigrants, including my ancestor Carter who was born in Northern Ireland and uh, came over in uh, 1840s. He lived in Liverpool for a little while with his uh, son and wife before they immigrated over here. Interesting. Yeah, so combating world hunger is an excellent goal. And I I guess they really deserve this, but I don't know who the World Food Program is run by. I don't know any of the players or anything like that, so I can't really comment anymore. But the Nobel Prize in Literature went to a famous poet named Louise Gluick. And she is uh, a delightful writer. I don't know much about poetry, honestly, but I'm not adverse to poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like reading poetry occasionally, and I, I don't. I'm an I'm a, I'm a I'm a fan, no, but I'm an affection not an affectionado either. I, I, I'm not unappreciative of it. So if someone wants to read poetry, I'll sit and listen. It's oh, it's really good, but I'm not going to spend hours and hours and hours reading volumes of poetry. It's also easy to come across some of this information from their website. It's a great website, one of my favorites I've come across in recent times. And I'm trying to find an example of the poetry. We had this in the in the show notes, I think, but I was looking at this a moment ago. Of her poetry? Yeah, do you know what I'm talking about? From Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Excellent. I wanted to read it. Go ahead and read that one for us. This is from her anthology, The Wild Iris, which was published in 1992, and her poem snowdrops they specifically cite this in the bio of her on her award citation and it goes like this it's talking about um the return to life after a winter so if you're an iris you might say something like this i did not expect to survive earth suppressing me i didn't expect to waken again to feel in damp earth my body able to respond again remembering after so long how to open again in the cold light of earliest spring. Afraid, yes, but among you again, crying, yes, risk joy in the raw wind of the new world. Oh, I'm sorry, that's just cool. Elegant. That's just delightful it to really read is. that. I, I, I just, you know, I'm imagining myself being a plant in the damp, cold earth and risking life by popping up into the raw early spring. Oh, that's, just, that's just a neat idea. She's been compared to Emily Dickinson. Uh, she's not Emily Dickinson, but if you want to look at poets, probably the closest. But I don't know much about Emily Dickinson either because I am kind of naive when it comes to poetry. I might be able to quote a Rudyard Kipling or two or basically anything in The Lord of the Rings <laughs> or The Hobbit. I could probably tell you uh, straight up. Um, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Any chance that Tolkien has won one of these? I don't believe so. This is terrible. But you have to be alive to have won it. Ah. And so if they were like, oh, we got to give Tolkien, he's the master. But um, it would might have been too late. Because some people, they get famous after they write something and it doesn't catch on for a while. 
And being that the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit were so weird for the day, it might have been, you know, much later when people realized how important this was and how monumental and excellent, wonderfully uh, superb these works are. But then again, probably English majors like, oh, he starts all his sentences with and. <laughs> well, speaking of the Nobel Prize, it does say from a website, TolkienLibrary.com, that he was nominated by fellow author and friend C.S. Lewis oh, in that. 1961. Cool. And he did not win, but he got that nomination. Cool. Good for C.S. Lewis. Way to go, man. Appreciate it. So then moving on to economics, and the economics award went to Paul Milgram and Robert Wilson for improvements for auction theory and inventions of new auction formats. This is weird. You think this is like, why would they get a Nobel Prize for looking at auctions? Well, the answer is, these are really important for daily life. Not just eBay, but, you know, things like um, electricity markets. You want to know how much you're going to pay for electricity this month? Well, it's because your uh, provider of electricity is making so much electricity, but if they're not enough, they have to buy it from somebody else. And they're like, well, who's can give me, you know, 500,000 kilowatt hours? Oh, you can over there in Canada because you're connected to our grid. Well, yeah, it's a little more than I can get over here in Buffalo. And, and that's a problem they have in California. There's no reason for California having brownouts and shutdowns. There's no reason at all. They're connected to the electricity grid in the rest of the country, but they can't afford to buy it. <laughs> wow. And so economically examining auctions and how they work and restructuring auctions and having some practical applications. In fact, one of the cool things about their work is that not only did they theoretically examine it, they had some practical suggestions and it led directly to changes in how auctions work. Impressive. Improving the technology of this information was really profound. <laughs> and maybe that's why we have eBay today. <laughs> because most of the time people do work and it's you know decades in the past before they're recognized with Nobel Prize. <laughs> Sometimes many decades. True. All right, so that's the easy ones. Ah, yes. Now we can move to the last three. Physiology or medicine. Well, that would be the next category. Yes. Physiology or medicine went jointly to Harvey J. Alter and Michael Hofton and Charles M. Rice for the discovery of hepatitis C virus. That name, H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. I know I know how to say it. There's a college with this name. Mm. I feel very ashamed that I have quite forgotten how to pronounce H-O-U-G-H-D-O-N. Hoyton, I think. I don't think it's Hooten. But I know that here in Georgia, there is an H-O-U-S-T-O-N. Houston. Not Houston. So this man's name is unpronounceable to the people who haven't actually heard the way to pronounce it. So sorry, Michael. We forget. Right. But hepatitis C virus is really important. We, hepatitis A is a virus that's just contagious and it's bad and it's, you know, you, you don't, it's easy to catch. Hepatitis C though, and B also, are bloodborne. And so they're important in the hospital. They're important for blood transfusions, organ transplants. And hepatitis C specifically in the earlier stages leads to cirrhosis of the liver and the later stages leads to liver cancer. So by identifying this virus, and the identification of this virus led directly to treatments for the virus. And so these guys literally saved millions of lives. And they advanced medicine. And they made hospitalization safer and blood transfusions much, much, much safer. Because even after A and B were 
discovered and recognized, there was still this mystery. It's like people are still dying from a virus and it looks like it's bloodborne and they couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And after a lot of work, these three guys, all their stuff pulled together, led to uh, the discovery of the hepatitis C virus. So good for them. I'm glad they got this award. And I know how hard it was. I mean, I wasn't there, but I mean, they're doing this work in like, what was it, 1960s? Yeah, 1960s. So 1960s technology. I mean, what did they know about genetics in the 1960s? What did they know about visualizing viruses and cloning DNA and things like that? I mean, when the coronavirus hit this year, I mean, within a month or two, we had the sequence. We had multiple sequences. We had it pictured in an electron microscope. We knew exactly what this thing was within a very short amount of time. But back then, they did not have the technology we have today. So hats off to them for all that work. Now, I know that a lot of their experimenting was done on chimpanzees, and a lot of monkeys died because of it. But you know what? I don't really have a problem with that. They weren't torturing the monkeys just for sadistic purposes. They were using them to help humans. And I'm sorry, animal lovers. I am an animal lover also, but humans do come first. Sure. They said, we are created in the image of God. Animals are not. I don't think we should, you know, just slaughter animals for no reason or burn them or hurt them or break their legs or, you know, I don't like the thought of sticking cosmetics in the eyes of rabbits. True. But as far as medical research goes, if we have to kill a couple of monkeys in order to figure out hepatitis C, then I think it was a worthwhile thing to do. Good job. That is an, that is an amazing story. Glad to hear things like that. And one thing that's really nice to go through these is that in 2020, we have a lot of angsty bad news. This is actually a breath of fresh air. I'm enjoying this. Hepatitis C is in a family of viruses called the Flavoviridae or the Flavoviruses, like yellow fever, dengue fever, Japanese encephalitis, West Nile virus, Zika virus. You've heard of these, right? Right. And it's more rare ones, too, that no one's ever heard of unless you're really an expert in this. But this, this family of viruses are notorious for harming people. And the more we learn about them, in fact, I bet the discovery and characterization of hepatitis C led to the rest of them. I bet a lot of these were found after the fact. Oh. And they figured out that there were similar viruses because of the work already done. Mm. They could more rapidly identify other members of this viral family. Well, awesome. Then moving on to chemistry... This went to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer A. Doudna mm-hmm. for the development of a method for genome editing. This sounds like it's right up your alley. Oh, yeah. Back in uh, Biblical Genetics episode, I don't remember anymore. I did it back in, um, oh, I think it was June when I released it. I called it the Genetic Engineering of Humans. I specifically talked about Jennifer Doudna. And I said, and I quote, I said, Jennifer Doudna, future Nobel laureate, I have no doubt. I said that. (laughs) I am a prophet. I had no idea it was going to be just six months later when she gets her Nobel Prize. Uh, But it was clear that she was going to be in the running for the Nobel Prize because of an unbelievable discovery. In fact, this went to two different women. and This might be the first time two women got it. I'm not sure, but good for them. Uh, Emmanuel Charpentier is French, and she and Jennifer worked together for a long time. And basically, there was something staring us all in the face, and it was staring me in the face, and I missed it. And everyone else in the world missed it, but they figured it out. Wow. It was already known that bacteria can 
incorporate bits of DNA in their genome from other species, specifically from viral species. What they figured out was that, oh, there's this thing called CRISPR-Cas9 that is part protein and part RNA. The RNA serves as a guide to locate it on the E. coli genomes, let's say, and the CRISPR part cuts the DNA and sticks another piece of DNA into the genome. So the bacteria have an immune system, and their immune system is bits and pieces of viral DNAs that they stick into their genome to remember, oh, I saw this once, I'm going to remember this. That's really cool. Now, that was already known, but what they figured out was they could change the RNA, and that would change the genomic target, and they could change the piece of DNA it was carrying, and therefore they could target any place in any genome and replace it with any piece of DNA that they so chose. I remember you explaining this then, yeah, one of the genome episodes. Yeah, this is the single greatest discovery in genetics maybe ever. It might have been greater than the southern blot, which allowed us to visualize pieces of DNA using radiation. It might have been greater than the PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, which allowed us to create many millions of copies of any piece of DNA that we like, which is, I mean, incredibly important uh, for, you know, gene sequencing and everything like that. All incredible. It's terrifying. And this is Pandora's box. It's going to lead to directly to amazing cures. I mean, they'll be able to fix Huntington's disease, which is lethal. If you carry one copy of it, it will kill you. And they'll be able to just snip that out and fix the letters. And all of a sudden, you don't have it. (sighs) But then there's a question of, can you do that to a person in such a way that they'll be able to pass on this change to their children? That's a very difficult question. Would they even be able to know until they have attempted it? You're assuming you change the gene. It would be a permanent change, but... Well, it will be permanent. Depends on how many body cells get changed, uh. and at what point. Or how about genetically? Uh, how about genetically modified babies? Oh, I know these cells here carry this Huntington's. Why don't we just CRISPR it and fix it, and then we'll use that artificial artificial insemination, and all of a sudden you have a child that doesn't have Huntington's disease, or you have a child with blue eyes, or you have a child that's a foot taller than anybody else, or as strong as Arnold Schwarzenegger or as fast as Usain Bolt, or really smart, or lives a really long time. (laughs) And the crazy thing is, a lot of the, I mean, those genes that I just mentioned are in the human genome already. Yeah. So it's not like you're creating something that doesn't exist if you take a gene that exists in Usain Bolt and put it in your child. What is theoretically wrong with that? Or Albert Einstein, or Shaquille O'Neal. It's not like you're making something new. You're just taking human DNA that already exists and putting it into one specific human. Wow. That's why this is so difficult. It is ugly and messy. Yeah, that is a tough question. Basically, all the geneticists in the world, just about, and all of the ethicists in the world, just about, have said, we should not be doing anything that affects the germline. In other words, we should not be doing any genetic changes that can be inherited. Because once you make that change, it's too late. And if you did something wrong, that child will be penalized for it. Has there been any known cases of that kind of change yet? Uh, yes. Oh. There was a scientist in China who has since disappeared. Wow. This a year or two ago. 
Um, I mean, literally just a couple of years after the discovery of, of CRISPR-Cas9, he announced that he had genetically modified two human babies and there was a third one on the way. And they were specifically engineered to be HIV resistant. He wow. claimed that they came from couples where the man was HIV positive and the woman was HIV negative. So he gave them a change that it's actually pretty common in Europe. There are a significant number of people who are resistant to HIV. We know what change it is. We know where it's located. And it's not neutral, though. They're, these people, they, they have some other issues, known genetic issues, but they're also very resistant to HIV, which is really cool. And so he made these changes in these children imperfectly. And the two girls have different types of changes. So he basically destroyed a gene in different ways, thinking he was making the same exact change and was just a little more sloppy than he wanted to admit. Ooh. And the third girl, I've not heard any reports on this. Now, granted, we don't actually know that these girls exist. It's true. They haven't been brought in front of uh, the cameras because they're little babies. Mm. And no one's done genetic analyses on them that we're aware of. But this was so bad, the Chinese government yeah. made this guy disappear. Mm. And big egg on their face. But the thing is, I don't want to say anything about China, but I've been, well, can I say it without risking wrath? I've been predicting for a while that the first genetically modified people are going to come out of China. And the reason for that is a government is based squarely on atheism and communism, which really not communist anymore. They're really just an economic dictatorship, but they don't have some of the moral guidances that some of the Western countries have where they're just still clinging to the remnants of Christianity. Mm, and yeah. if you already think that you are the best country in the world and your people are the best people in the world, why not make more of the best people? So find your super brainiac super athlete and clone them or figure out what- Or if you have any doubts about what makes your people the most superior, then just enhance them. And then you can say, see, now we are the most superior. It's true. We exactly. need evolution happen. Exactly. And what do we do with the Olympics in the future? Literally 20 years from now, the possibility of genetically modified people in the Olympics is staring us in the face. What do we do with them? Do we say, no, you can't be here because you're a mutant? Or you're genetically enhanced or they say yeah but lance armstrong has this gene and my child has a gene what's wrong with that i would have to say that it would have to be categorically different sort of like the uh, special olympics and <laughs> then a normal olympics and then the the superman uh, olympics. superhuman <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah you, i could see it going that way have you ever seen the movie gattaca no. I love that but It's movie. on my list. Oh, it's definitely one to watch, especially now, because it goes exactly along these lines. Two brothers, one of them is not genetically enhanced, and one of them is. And the one who's not wants to go to space. But you can only go to space if you're genetically enhanced. <laughs> but that, this is what the CRISPR technology has opened up for us. And now they've discovered other CRISPR-type things. Because, you know, once you have this basic experiment or basic design, oh, well, we can modify it or let's go look for other ones. And now they have other ways of doing this. And the ability to cut and paste DNA is rapidly accelerating. And now we, as a world society, have to decide what to do with this. And we're not mature enough yet. We're not, as a world system, we're not ready to handle cloned or genetically enhanced humans. I predict that the first cloned human will be murdered because people can't handle the thought. <sighs> so that's the prediction that I'm making right now. And I, I, can, I can just see it. Just, you know, yeah. you know some, some idiot wants to get famous, so he kills the, the first clone. Or someone's scared of him, so they kill the first clone. Or whatever. 
I imagine they're going to keep this person a secret, which means that we'll never actually know if it's true or not until a very long time later. But literally, cloning and genetic manipulation is today, not tomorrow. Wow. Well, then in the final minutes, we should talk about the physics award. It was a split between Roger Penrose, Reinhard Genzel, and Andrea Gez. Roger for the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. Reinhard, uh, no, Reinhard and Andrea for the discovery of a supermassive compact object at the center of our galaxy. Oh, yeah. Now, Roger Penrose, of course, is famous. He's a name that I knew already. Uh, as a physicist, he's talked a lot about black holes. I mean, you know, going back to Stephen Hawking and his black hole stuff, the math that he did. Uh-huh. Well, Penrose is, is in that category. And he, what he did is he took Hawking's black hole idea and tied it in very tightly with Albert Einstein's uh, general theory of relativity. So relatively naturally led to the idea of black holes. Penrose took them and he said, no, it's not just natural leading to it. It's a natural outcome. And the math is beautifully intertwined and one leads to the other and they mutually support each other. And so the idea that black holes exist is, is I, mean, I, I think it's indisputable today. Because mathematically, they should exist. And the idea is really simple. And we can experimentally see it all over the place. Gravity bends light. And one of the first, uh, the first uh, predictors, now the first confirmations of this was during an eclipse, some people looked at a star that was near the sun. But it was eclipsed. You normally couldn't see it in the daytime. But because the moon was in front of the sun, they looked at the star. And they already knew where the star was supposed to be especially in relation to the stars around it. And they're like, oh man, it's in the wrong place. Because a star was, the starlight was coming from just to the right of the sun, I think it was. And it was passing the sun, it was bending, and it moved the star. And the star really didn't move, but the light beam moved. The gravity of the sun bent the starlight. And that was a first huge confirmation for Einstein right there. And since then, I mean, gravitational lensing of galaxies that are behind galaxies and quasars behind galaxies and on and on and on and on and on. All this experimental support for the idea that black holes exist and mathematical support, which is for some people, they, they, they really have a problem with this. But black holes are just physics. If light can bend because of gravity, if you put enough gravity, light can bend in a circle. Huh. And if light can go in a circle, put a little bit more gravity and like will be sucked in to the gravitational source. And that is a black hole. The circle, of course, is an event horizon. So what's the best argument against them? Um, I don't know. Hmm. Incredulity? No, that can't be true. You've never seen one. And it's true, we've never seen a black hole because you can't detect the light, but you can detect the gravity for the black hole. And that's where the next two people come in. It's funny because Andrea, I had a roommate named Andrea once. He was from Italy. That's Andrew in Italian. But this Andrea is a woman. In fact, I remember oh, yeah. a, a dear friend of mine, this old lady at this church that I went to when I was in college. I was in Miami now. And I said, hey, you've reached the, the um, home of Rob and Andrea. Leave a message. <laughs> and her voicemail was, Rob, who's Andrea? You better call me now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Andrea is a woman here, and she and Reinhardt are looking at stars at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, it's a little tricky because there's lots of dust 
in our galaxy. So you have to pick the right frequency of light that'll penetrate the dust. I think it's in the infrared. I could be corrected there, but I think it's in the infrared. If you pick that frequency, you can see the stars in the middle of the galaxy. Cool. And if you have a super excellent telescope that does a super duper job of magnific magnification, you can zoom up on the very center. People have speculated for a long time there's a black hole at the center of this, the galaxy. But how would you know? You watch the stars. You watch the stars as they orbit the middle of the galaxy. Their paths are distorted by a black hole. In fact, you can watch the stars move really fast around something that's very dense and very small. And literally they go zing, zing. Within weeks to months, they move millions of miles in highly elliptical orbits. Is it possible that they could even travel at such great speeds that we're talking beyond the speed of sound or uh, closely approximating the speed of light when they get to that to that's close to the middle? No, because they would have to they would be entering the event horizon at that point. If you're going to travel that fast, you're, you're at relativistic speeds and you're going to be sucked into the black hole. That's the only way to go that fast is to be that close to it. So they would disappear. Oh, okay. But we can see them orbiting something. And the only explanation for these orbits is a very dense gravitational body at the middle of the galaxy. Now I'm going to look up here. Da, 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 da. Where is the no, chemistry? No, not that one there. It is estimated that the black hole to center of the Milky Way is 4 million times the mass of the sun. <laughs> and if our sun can bend a star, the light from a star, how much would 4 million suns bend? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's, That's why they're able to detect it. If it was a smaller black hole, um, they wouldn't have been able to see it. Because the smallest possible black hole, eh, the, the smallest one they've seen is maybe 3.8 times the size of the sun. Hmm. You can get smaller than that theoretically. Basically, you can have very small and very compact black holes. They're not huge. And if that's true, you wouldn't be able to detect them. Because they just look like a star. They have the gravitation of a star. If they're in a galaxy or they're floating in interstellar space or intergalactic space, it, their, their gravity would be almost indetectable at these scales that we're ha we'd have to see them. But I have an idea for a science fiction book that people are trying to fly to the nearest galaxy or even to the, the nearest star and the spaceships keep disappearing. They can't figure out why. And then they figure it out that's because the interstellar spaces are populated by a bunch of very tiny black holes about the size of basketballs. Whoa. Huh. And anytime a starship gets close, it gets sucked in and disappears. Yeah. Gets condensed huh. inside a basketball-sized black hole. Anyway, that's kind of silly, but it's kind of a fun idea to think about. Sure. That there's just huh. lots of little rogue yeah. black holes everywhere, and it prevents us from exploring the heavens. That'd be very sad. But interesting. I mean, this is really cool. Yeah. I I've seen this video, and you can, you can find the video. Like maybe we'll have to find it and, and put it in the show notes of stars and watching them over time orbit around a dense center of our galaxy. So Stephen Hawking was not crazy. Albert Einstein was not nuts. These ideas have been validated with our eyeballs. Wow. And the math works out, according to Penrose. Physics is right there. Black holes are reality. And these people deserve a Nobel Prize for figuring out one of the most hugest and coolest things in the universe. 
It says from the the details concerning the the news on the report about it, it says these exotic objects still pose many questions that beg for answers and motivate future research. Not only questions about their inner structure, but also questions about how to test our theory of gravity under the extreme conditions in the immediate vicinity of a black hole. Interesting. Well, that's going to wrap it up for the Nobel Prizes 2020. That is uh, an excellent allotment. What do you think we're going to talk about next week? Oh, I know what we're talking about next week. It's going to be the opposite of the Nobel Prizes. The Ig Nobel Prizes. <laughs> this sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a great idea. It's a spinoff on some of the worst papers published this year. Almost like the Darwin <laughs> Awards, but like for scientists who didn't kill themselves. I didn't know anything about this. This is awesome. We're going to talk about the Darwin Awards. We're going to talk about the Journal of Improbable Results and the Ig Nobel Prizes for some of the worst science of the year. Excellent. And it's funny and it's going to be fun. And I'm not going to tell you what they are beforehand because I want to hear you laugh. Oh, it's going to happen. When you hear how ridiculous some of these scientific... And the weirdest thing, though, is people will show up at the award ceremony to get the award for their bad science. <laughs> 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 anyway yeah, would you mm. it's got a Nobel Prize in the name it's really tempting I mean they didn't realize what it was well thank you everyone for joining us on this quest if you found this episode interesting in any way consider sharing it with any friends and family members that would like it too if you want to dig deeper into our subjects you'll find all kinds of cool stuff to check out in the show notes for this episode they're available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 32. The show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone. And you should also check out Biblical Genetics, which is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is available on Facebook and YouTube where you can watch the videos and join discussions in the comments. If you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Or uh, take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm forward slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And you have been listening to Equinox. The illustrious Robert Carter. Let me say, <laughs> Carter? The illustrious Robert Carter.